Well, again, good morning to my fellow saints here, and good morning to everyone who is joining with us online. It is a blessing, I think, sometimes that we are forced to scale back a little. Even not having a piano this morning, as much as it feels uncomfortable and maybe it's not what we're used to, I think it's good for us to be reminded that God has gifted each one of us with what we need to worship Him. And I know that there are many of us, even in times of family worship or things like that, where we are hesitant to sing because some of us are gifted with great musical ability and some of us are left a little lacking in the musical ability department. But God does not look at our ability to, to sing and judge us based on perfect pitch and our ability to keep rhythm. He looks at the hearts of his people and the worship that they are bringing to him and goes, are they worshiping me with hearts that are seeking to glorify me? And I think it is good for us to sometimes be reminded that all that we have up here, the pianos, the basses, the microphones, the everything else, they are incredible blessings. They are things for which we can be extremely thankful, but there are so many churches around the world that have none of this. It's, there are many churches even around Canada that their worship is one lady, same lady, every Sunday, sitting at an old piano that is nowhere near as nice as that, sitting at an old piano that's out of tune and singing in worship to their God. And we need to be reminded that whether we're sitting around an old piano or we're singing together as people with no instruments, that we can still worship our God because there is yet an opportunity that with the way our world is going and the way things are, this stuff might be taken away from us. And if it is taken away from us, we need to be prepared that worship doesn't end because we don't have microphones and a piano and those kind of things. We have God's Word, and we have decades and centuries of amazing songs written for God's glory that we can sing whether or not we would like to hear a playback of the recording. So I think it is good that every now and then we are reminded to that the simplicity is, is okay. Like, like Tim had prayed, the uh, third s Sunday of January doesn't immediately ring any bells as far as kind of a designated remembrance is concerned. But in the last number of years, there's been an emergence of what we call the National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And it's garnered some traction, and I think rightly so. The idea behind this remembrance on this Sunday was it was specifically targeted at the proliferation and the acceptance of abortion. That's why it's scheduled on the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision or somewhere thereabouts. And I didn't even realize that this year was, in fact, the 50th year of that anniversary. The Roe v. Wade decision was based on a woman's right to an abortion. And as such, this Sunday was originally specifically about that. But today, however, the somewhat newer concepts of state-assisted and state-condoned uh, euthanasia and medically-assisted suicide have been brought under that umbrella as well. And we are not going to take our full time this morning to dive into those issues, but it is worthwhile for us to be reminded. We're going to discuss our passage today focuses in on the redemption that is found in the blood of Christ. And we need to remember the wickedness that still abounds in our world. 
and the wickedness from which we have been redeemed ourselves, the wickedness of the world that we have been chosen out of. In Canada, I know many of the states that we are used, or many of the stats that we're used to hearing comes out of the states. And in Canada, abortion became legal in 1969 on the sole grounds that the pregnancy threatened the life or health of the mother. It was not until 1988 that the Canadian courts decided that limiting abortions violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms because it infringed upon a woman's right to life, liberty, and security of person. The result was that abortions, and we sometimes use the term abortion because we don't like to call a spade a spade, the murder of unborn children was now to be treated like any other medical procedure. The net result is that, as of most current data, 75,000 human children were murdered through medical abortions in 2020. That number does not include those who were killed by pharmaceutical abortions or um, abortive medicines such as Plan B and that kind of thing. So even just based on the likely much, much smaller number of only 75,000 children being murdered, there will be, based on averages, over 200 children killed today and tomorrow and the next day. And on and on it goes. And as sad as that is, that's not the end of the story. On the other end of the spectrum, Canada is currently lining itself up quite proudly, might I add, to be one of the most accessible countries in the world for what we have so tastefully termed medical assistance in dying. It goes by the acronym MADE. That umbrella covers all manner of preemptively ending the life of a person. We are in the top six most accessible countries in the world for medical suicide. And the evolution of that slippery slope has run from the original ending of the life of someone who has been definitively diagnosed with a terminal medical illness that causes them intense suffering. That was the original. This person is suffering. They are definitely going to die and die soon, so we will end their life preemptively there. And that was the original cell. Then it moved to simply ending the life of a person who is enduring intolerable suffering. Very broad scope as to what intolerable suffering looks like. And now, next month, there is set to be another revision to Bill C-7 in Canada's laws. And Canada is likely, they're still working out the details, but Canada is likely to include mental illness as the sole underlying cause acceptable for a medical assistance in dying. That means if you are experiencing what our world calls depression or anxiety or any other mental illness, that will be enough for you to apply for medical assistance in dying. And if that wasn't enough, that same revision is also set to quite likely include what our medical, assist, medical system calls mature minors, children ages 12 to 18. And I don't know about you, particularly as I think of the epidemic of what our world is calling depression and anxiety, think of your age 12 to 18, how much of that was spent anxious or depressed. 
and realizing that that anxiety or depression could be enough for you to apply for and be killed by our state system. It is terrifying to me. So that means that so far, right now, the only time where a human may not be some reason legally killed by the state in our country is from birth to 18, and likely about to become from birth to age 12, where a person is safe from being legally killed by the state. And thus far, consent is still required for the person pursuing assisted suicide or euthanasia. But for a person who is experiencing depression or anxiety, suicide itself may soon be overseen and dispensed by our very own government. It only takes a moment of reading, and as I was taking time this week, I read the story of a man who was admitted to hospital and called his brother saying, all right, come break me out of here. I don't want to be in here anymore. And then this guy had a history of depression. And so he asked his brother, come get me out of here. And then had a depressive episode and applied for medical assistance in dying and was killed within a month. And his only underlying medical cause at that point was partial deafness. And within a month, he was gone, and he had medical staff that had already expressed concern that this was not going to be an appropriate response, and they went through it with it anyways. To give you an idea of the accessibility and the problematic nature of this medical assistance in dying, I want to be very clear. According to Scripture, to kill another person, except in extremely specific situations, is clearly condemned as sin. Nowhere in Scripture are we given guidance for compassionate murder. There are some provisions that were made in Scripture, things such as capital punishment, in some situations self-defense or military action, but overall, to kill another human being is a sinful and a punishable offense throughout Scripture. God told Noah in Genesis 9, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And listen to verse 6 of Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That right there is one of our greatest grounds against the taking of human life. The fact that every man, woman, child, baby, infant, baby in utero, every single one of them was made in the image of God. Scripture makes it clear that God is even now knitting together in the wombs of mothers people. People made in his image. And that is why we cannot take human life. First Corinthians, Paul has much to say about the human body. In chapter 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We do not have a faith that separates body and soul and says, okay, the body we can destroy, but the soul is the important part. God has created man both body and soul, and both are important. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We are not our own. We have been purchased at great price. 
And we as believers need to do absolutely everything we can to stand against the sinful ending of life at whatever stage, beginning to end. And we do so because we see the value of each fellow bearer of God's image. And we submit to the commands of Scripture. Based on prevailing statistics, there will be multiple people in this room and joining with us online that will have been impacted by these issues. Abortion, suicide, euthanasia, etc. And whatever else we hear this morning, I want us to hear two things clearly. First, we acknowledge that it is sinful to take the life of another, except as specifically outlined in Scripture, or for a person to take their own life. That is sin. But second, we have to acknowledge, and this fits well because we're going to pivot to look at the redemption that is found in the blood of Christ. God has made provision for the forgiveness of sin. And abortion and murder and suicide are sin, but God has made provision for the forgiveness of sin. There is a one-item list of unforgivable sin. And as such, those who have committed such sins that are not on that one-item list, they are within the bounds of God's ability to save if they truly repent and are forgiven in Christ. The unforgivable sin is listed in Mark 3 and Luke 12. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that is a big topic for another day. But I want each one of us to hear clearly that whatever wickedness or sin that we have committed in our own lives, and we have all had our fair share of wickedness and sin, the redemption found in the blood of Christ is sufficient for our wickedness and our sinfulness. If you have had an abortion, God has made a way that you would be forgiven. If you have attempted suicide, God has made a way that you could be forgiven. If you have family members or friends who have committed suicide that were followers of Christ, that is not a one-way ticket to hell. If you have committed suicide, that is sin. But if we are saved by the blood of Christ, we are saved from all sins, sins that we have committed, will commit, and are committing. Our redemption is found in the blood of Christ, and his redemption is sufficient. We do not take these things lightly, and we do everything we can to stop them from continuing. As citizens of a nation, we must use every tool available to us to hold our governments account accountable for sinful policies. We must care deeply for one another so that those who would think that suicide or euthanasia might be their only way out, that we might be able to show the love of Christ to one another and bring to bear the comfort that can only be found in Christ, in the Scriptures, upon our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And we must care for those who are yet unborn, who are unable to speak for themselves as well as the mothers of these children. And I would make a plea that our church become keenly aware of the ways in which we can support our families, those who are raising children, and in particularly those families who would raise children that are not born to their own blood, children who are born through adoption or fostering or kinship care and welcomed into families not their own. Let us do our part to squash the argument that there is no alternative to ending the life of a child. And let's do that by being coming ones who would welcome such children. Let's support those who have already done so. There are several families in our midst who have engaged in foster care or adoption or kinship care 
or other manners of raising children not their own. And I would hope that there are more who might think to do so. I would love to see more such families in our church. But I understand that that isn't the possibility for every family. For those who cannot welcome these children into your home, support those that are. Pray for them. Care for them. Offer help with driving or visits or appointments. Get certified as respite homes for foster care providers. Babysit. Offer help as God leads you to. And probably one of the most important, educate yourselves and teach your own families about foster care and adoption and kinship care so that these children aren't faced with answering these questions themselves, that your children would already know that this is one way that God puts together families and treat these children with the same kindness and respect that you would afford to any other person in the church. Don't treat these families as different or difficult to care for. Love them as a part of our church for however long they're with us. And finally, we can do our absolute best to demonstrate and teach to our children biblical family values and sexual ethics. Marriage. One man, one woman for life, equally yoked as fellow believers spiritually healthy nuclear families, father and mother demonstrating biblical gender and relational roles, the scriptural pattern for families is a tremendous, though not guaranteed, bulwark against all of the questions that lead to abortion and these other elements of the sanctity of human life. We need to be committed as a church family and as our individual families to following God's pattern for families and how families ought to be raised. And not all of us are in situations where we can go back and change our families. And if we can't go back and change our families, then we need to be a family as Elk Point Baptist Church that can support the families that can't. Families that don't have a believing father or husband to lead ought to find men and women here in this church that can help them in the raising of their children in the way that they should go, and we should all be helping one another raise the children of this church as our own. What a beautiful thing it is when the church recognizes the sanctity of human life and pursues every avenue to see that God's will would be done in the lives of our children and our families. Would you join with me in prayer, and then we will pivot to the redemption side of these things. Our God, we know the incredible wickedness that our world has engaged in, and each day, each moment, we, we look and we see this wickedness seeming to grow. The world finding new ways to contravene your laws. We can see the results of you turning these people who have rejected you over to their sin. And they are becoming more and more perverse in their ways of breaking your law. And as bad as this is, we see it impacting the lives of the children and the vulnerable who are in this world. The people who struggle with their mental health, the unborn children who do not have a voice, children who ought to be being protected and led by God-fearing parents, all at risk of having their lives ended because they can see no better way. And Lord, may we as your church display that better way. May we as your church speak out against the evils that this world would concoct and declare the truths of Scripture. 
And Lord, we pray that we as your people would lead the charge and that we would make clear what you have commanded. And Lord, we thank you that we have seen that already. So many among us caring for those who are weak or unborn or unable to live with their biological families. Lord, we commit each one of these to you. We ask that you would stir in our hearts a desire to see a change in these things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Like I said earlier, now we get to pivot and transition into this morning's passage from Ephesians 1. And it is good that we do so. Because I don't know about you, but looking at the incredible wickedness of our world is enough to just leave us stunned. We just look at it and go, but what am I supposed to do with this? I can't do anything with it. But thankfully, we have been given hope that is not grounded in this world. If we have hope that this world will suddenly turn itself around and get better and cancel all of these wicked things, those hopes are going to be dashed. But if our hope is found in Christ, if our hope is found in the redemption found in the blood of Christ, then we at least have something to cling to that the world does not have. We're in the midst of Paul's introduction here, and he is declaring his praise to God in the opening of this letter. There are three spiritual blessings in particular that he keys in on, and this morning's is number two. The first one that we looked at last week was that he has chosen us. He has chosen the saints that are faithful in Christ, that we might be holy and blameless before him. Then Paul says in verses 6 to 10, and I'll steal his preamble from verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And down to verse 6. He has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This passage extends from verse 3 down to verse 14. And it is one of the most incredible examples in Scripture of the amazing work of our triune God in salvation. In theological circles, the study of salvation is called soteriology. And each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this passage and throughout Scripture, each member is involved in the salvation of the saints. God, specifically God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to any other supposed God, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Again, like we said last week, divine blessing, blessings of a spiritual and heavenly nature, find their sole origin in Yahweh, God the Father, not any other God or anything else this world can conjure up. The Father has blessed us in the Beloved. That word beloved makes us very obviously key in on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. In Colossians, Paul said of the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The love of God the Father for the Son is rampant throughout the New Testament. And whenever I hear Christ referred to as the Beloved, 
my mind is immediately tossed back to Matthew chapter 3. Christ is baptized by John the Baptist. And coming up out of the water, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Again, all three members of the Godhead involved at work here. And even in John 3, we hear, He who God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul very clearly wants to drive home a few things, but in particular here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is making clear that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all integral to the salvation of those whom God has chosen. There have been many throughout history that would exclude one or the other. Most often the Holy Spirit is the one that is left out in the cold by people's theology and says, well, he's just kind of a sidebar. No. Paul makes clear that the Spirit is active, and we will get in particular into the work of the Spirit next week. But as we read of the redemption found in the blood of Christ, I hope that those who have been here for a little while hear echoes of our time in Hebrews. The talk of both new and old covenants. There is no other book of the Bible that so clearly talks about the old covenant becoming the new covenant and what the blood of Christ means than Hebrews. The author of Hebrews said in chapter 9, verse 11 and following, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Skipping down to verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is in God the Son, Jesus Christ, that we have redemption. This word redemption is a transactional word. In our economy, when it's functioning as intended, I would redeem money for goods or services, and that money acts as a token. It represents real assets. And I exchange, I redeem those funds for a good or a service. And Christ... His blood redeems his people. In real truth, Christ's blood is the currency that purchases his people, claiming them for his own use and purpose. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, we read this earlier, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That price with which you were bought was the blood of Christ. spilled for us. And with it, he purchased us. He ransomed us. Not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is from 1 Peter 1. He bought us through his blood. He paid for the forgiveness of our trespasses. And he did so according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Again, we have Paul wanting to emphasize 
that our salvation is found entirely in God. That through Christ, by the will of God, God has set about saving His people. And that is an incredibly freeing and humbling view of salvation. And hopefully it makes us so driven to glorify Him. It's freeing in the sense that we no longer feel compelled to earn the salvation that has been gifted to us in Christ. Instead, we live and we serve out of gratitude for what has been done to us. I'm pretty sure all of us have a fairly good understanding of what it feels like to work for someone else. And I don't care who you are, if you're working for someone else, even if you have a good boss and a good salary and good benefits, there comes a time where you're working for someone and you go, man, it would be nice to just not have to work for someone, to not have to earn this money. There's a reason why people love the idea of a lottery because I didn't have to earn that money. It was just bestowed on me. But even in that, they still had to buy umpteen number of tickets to get there. But we want the freedom of not having to work for someone to earn a living, and that's half the joy of retirement and what people look forward to in retirement a lot of times, that they're no longer working for a wage. They can now choose how they would spend their life, not simply trying to make enough money to pay bills and make ends meet. Salvation, redemption, freedom from sin. That is not our wage for a life lived according to God's rules and doing his bidding. Salvation is a gift. And the way we live, the righteousness, the devotion that we will necessarily show if God has saved us comes from the new heart that we are given and from a gratitude for what has been given to us. So replacing that idea of working for a dollar, working for a wage with doing the same kind of job that we might do only for a friend who has given you so much and has done so much for you that there is a debt of gratitude that can never be repaid. And the friend isn't saying, well, I did this for you, so come and do, do something for me. It's a, you have this incredible love for this friend who has done so much for you that you just want to say, anything I can do. You have done so much for me. Can I use my, my skills, my gifts to help you out in any way? You work to help that friend because you love him and you would do anything to care for him. That work is no longer out of compulsion or guilt or even necessarily necessity, but instead your work is an extension of a grateful heart. And we are in Ephesians, which is a work of the Apostle Paul. And if you read much of Paul, and if you read much about Paul and his story, you will realize who he was and what he has become. His writing oozes of gratitude towards God. He calls himself the chief of sinners. That's how he views himself. And in some sense, he was. He was a murderer and persecutor of God's church. He was hunting down Christians and leading to their deaths. And then now he has become a chief worker for the gospel. And that was not out of a drudgery of, okay, I got to pay back for all the bad things I did. God appeared to him and revealed himself to him. And Paul, from that moment on, served at the command of Christ. And his writing and his life showed an overflow of gratitude that God had called him from death to life. If we see our salvation as being primarily about us, then God plays second fiddle in that relationship. But if we see ourselves as the recipients of a gift that is far beyond our ability to afford or deserve, if we see that He has chosen us and that He has done so to the praise of His glorious grace, that He has saved us from our sin, 
paying the price with the blood of his son according to the riches of his grace and for his purpose, then we will respond in true and heartfelt worship. And that worship is not just coming to church on Sunday. That worship is not coming and singing a few songs and reading our Bible. Our true worship, Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we are saved, if we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then we will worship God in the way that we live and act in all things. All throughout Scripture, we have God's revelation of himself to humanity. The way he even builds his creation, the universe around us, there is a general revelation that leaves all mankind without excuse without the ability to say, I didn't know there was a God. But that was not enough. So he chooses for himself a people, the people of Israel. He personally reveals himself in the Old Covenant, but even that revelation was incomplete because he reveals himself to them, but in that Old Covenant, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was always something more. There was a peace to that puzzle that was missing. Because anyone who looked at it could say, the blood of a sheep cannot pay for the sin of a man. There's a difference in value here. There were only shadows and types of the salvation that was to come. But upon the incarnation of Christ, culminating in his death and resurrection and his glorification, the fullness of God's revelation regarding salvation is made complete. His grace has been lavished upon his people in all wisdom and insight. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Since Christ, there have been all manner of groups that have claimed to come up with some secret knowledge, a special key, a twist, something new to add to the commandments of Scripture and the revelation of God, saying, okay, all of that is good, but we also need X, some secret knowledge. But in Christ, in God's revelation of Christ, which we find in the 66 books of Scripture as originally written, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. We know what God is about and what he is doing, and we even know in general terms how he is doing it. We are naturally curious about the plans of God. If we claim to follow him, we want to know, okay, where are we going? And oftentimes, we kind of cop out a little bit, and we fall back on the Isaiah 55, 9, your ways are higher than my ways, and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And that is true. We cannot say that we fully comprehend the mind of God, but big picture in Christ, we no longer need to ask what God's plan and purpose might be. We don't have to ask that question anymore. Central to all of creation history, all of mankind from Adam to the last man who will ever exist on this earth, God's will is that according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is what God is doing. God is set about uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. When we look at the state of our world and even world history, we can know that even in these things, what was God doing? What was God doing when the dark things of this world happened? What was God doing when, even when Roe v. Wade went through, what was God doing when, insert here, in some way or another, we know that God was set about uniting all things under Christ. 
and that one day all things will be set right and ordered under him. This brings us to our final point and encouragement. One day, fully and finally, the chaos and the evil to which our world naturally gravitates since sin has been introduced, all of those things will be put as they should be. The ultimate future of our universe is not simply ever-increasing chaos and ultimate annihilation. There will be increasing chaos. We see that in our world. We see that in the flow of this sanctity of human life or the lack thereof. But one day, the one who rules now in the heavenly places, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, he will come again. And when he does come again, his reign will be enacted on this earth His reign will be enacted upon the created order and all of the disorder, all of the chaos, all of the evil, all of the sin that our world is so steeped in will be set right and ordered under him. Everything that was introduced upon Adam's sin will be rectified in Christ. Mankind is sliding down slippery slopes. It shouldn't be surprising to us that what is good is being called evil and what is evil is being called good. And as so much of mankind is rejecting God and everything about him, he in turn is turning them over to their own wickedness and the fruit thereof. But one day, the wickedness will be set right in Christ, and that is good news. It is good news that God has a plan and his plan will be accomplished and it has been accomplished. Right now, we might not see it. We might not even feel it. We look, like I said, when we look at the issues of abortion and this euthanasia and assisted suicide, we go, there is nothing. There is nothing about this that is right. There is nothing about this that is good And we are left with this kind of numb hopelessness looking at the breadth of the wickedness of our society. But even there, we have the glimmer of hope that God is about something. God is doing something. And that we can still hope in him, even when our world gives us no inkling of His plan will be and has been accomplished. We are now just waiting to see the full results of it. And I hope we can cling to that hope. And I don't know about you, but the last couple weeks, I kind of felt that sometimes someone is writing a bad country song with kind of various stages of my life. My dog got sick. My truck broke down. My kid got sick. It's like... Just kind of a never-ending list of like, okay, that's enough. I've talked to quite a few people, and the last, the beginning of 2023 and the kind of the tail end of 2022 has not been a great start to this coming year. And it's easy to see all of my own failures mixed with everything in my world seeming to not go quite as I think it should. And if we're focused on that, we are left with nothing. We can't drum up hope in our own hopeless situations. But if we find our hope in Christ, if we find our hope in the redemption that allows us to see and participate in and look forward to God's ultimate plan, which ultimately is the climax of all history, We can know that no matter the chaos or the trial or the sinful activity going on around us, that according to God's purpose, he is bringing all things together under Christ. And one day he will establish on earth what has already been established in heaven, the eternal reign of Christ over creation. So if I look at my life and go, nothing seems to be going quite the way I planned it. That's okay because it's going as God has planned it. And 
even in the difficulty and the trial and the pain, we can sing, I have ultimate hope. I love that Tim used that light, momentary affliction of this world. It doesn't feel light while we're here. It feels overwhelming and huge and dark. But in the span of eternity, the affliction we face in this life pales and becomes light. So I hope that whatever difficulty or affliction or trial that you are going through, that you might be able to look to God, look to what he has done in choosing his people, in redeeming his people, granting forgiveness to your sin, and go in the face of the eternal blessings and glory that God has given us, even that which I'm going through right now is light, even if it doesn't feel that way right now. That you would trust in Christ and what he has done. Our hope is not in this world, nor is it in the things of this world, but our hope is in Christ and in God the Father. And as we plan to discuss next week, it is guaranteed with the seal of the Holy Spirit, our inheritance in a great and future hope. I believe the worship team has one closing song for us, and it's one that we all know well, so hopefully we can get there. Would you join with me in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, like we have said, our world is so wicked and has left so many things in our hearts and in our minds that we just shake our heads and can't even begin to think how, how you might be using these things. But God, we know you are. We know that your ways are higher than our ways, and we know that your way is uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That you have set forth your purpose according to your will, a plan for the fullness of time. And Lord, may we be able to beg to your will and say, I don't, I don't understand, but God, you do, and we know that you are doing something good even in the wickedness that we see around our world. May we trust in your sovereignty. Trust in the character that you have shown throughout Scripture and throughout our own lives, knowing who you are and that you are all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present. And Lord, may we cling to that hope that you have given us even when it seems like there is no hope. And may we be motivated to live according to your word because of our gratitude for what you have done and our desire to obey that you have given us in the new heart that you have given us. You have granted us a heart that would desire to obey you and may we do so. May we put to death the sinful parts of our hearts and our lives that would do, do battle against the new, new life that you have brought about in us. Lord, we thank you for these blessings for these brothers and sisters here around us. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.